0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: So did you guys see the photo last night of uh, Trump and uh, Romney and Reince previous at Jean-Georges having dinner?
2: Oh, and the, the look on, uh, on Romney's face was precious. Look <laughs> on Trump's face was precious.
0: <laughs> it said a lot.
1: <laughs> One of them seemed to be enjoying himself yes, more than
0: the other. <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> but I,
2: I think my favorite... How's that
0: crow taste?
2: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> was it elegantly arranged? Eat up. <laughs> I, I think my favorite part, other than the pool reporting what each of them ate yeah. for what, dinner... What did they eat? Crow. <laughs> <laughs> D- diver's scallops, apparently. Diver crow. mm mm-hmm. um, and and some other elegant goodies. But I think my favorite meme generated by that photo, which generated many memes last night, was um, from the wonderful Twitter account, at Poor Me Coffee. Oh, yeah. Which superimposed that photo with two photos from Twin Peaks <laughs> <laughs> of Bob the Evil Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I saw one where somebody
3: had, had compiled it with the Chris Christie photo and the Ted Cruz on the phone saying oh. they were going to make it a coffee table book of just like people who had <sighs> realized they'd <laughs> sold their souls to Donald Trump.
0: Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Who Wants to Be a Secretary of State edition. I I'm, do. <laughs> you do, you could be. <laughs>
1: Pick me, pick me
0: <laughs> You get a rose <laughs> I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal What? That happened this hey. week. Yeah, yay. Shane Harris the Wall Street yes. Journal Do you think I'm defining myself too narrowly? I should have like a new thing every week Like, And
3: now you're wearing a suit and like a tie Shane Harris,
0: man reporter <laughs> I,
1: think, I, think, I think the Wall Street Your Journal man When is reporter. the Wall Street Journal going to pick up Rational yeah, Security now? Tell you what,
0: get on it Ruben Memo Rast to the Wall Street around. Journal there's You're a God podcast. <laughs> hey, you can there's the this great podcast.
2: Now. Go multimedia with us. <laughs> totally.
0: Uh, we are here in the Jungle Studio with you here, my friends, Tamara Kaufman Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. Uh, it, it is humid in here. We it is, that. actually.
3: We're
1: going to actually add a humidifier to the Jungle Studio to make it more jungly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it mm-hmm. feels pretty jungly.
0: Uh, and it's like a jungle out there, too. So how appropriate. Uh, this week on the podcast, President-elect Trump is zeroing in on a nominee for Secretary of State.
2: Who will be voted off the island. Only
0: he knows the finalists. <laughs> Election recounts begin amid fears of computer hacking, and in San Francisco, hackers hold the municipal railway system hostage, uh, plus object lessons. Um, Let's start with that dinner uh, at Jean-Georges, not in Trump Tower, right? It was one of the other Trump Tower properties uh, where Mitt Romney sat down with Reince Priebus and Donald Trump presumably to talk about actually becoming Secretary of State. Although, wouldn't it just be like Trump to have him to dinner and be like, listen, I know I brought you out of here. I'm never giving you this fucking job, ever.
2: I think that would be very yeah. like Donald some Trump. Some
0: people today. think it's a head fake. Adam Schiff, the uh, vice chair, uh, sorry, ranking member of the House and Intel Committee, has said publicly he thinks this is a head fake. Romney will never be Secretary of State. Is this all some elaborate... Uh, ruse for humiliation. I mean, one of the
3: most amazing things that has happened over the past, I don't know, forty-eight hours. I've like completely lost track of time since the election. Um but uh, was this Kellyanne Conway interview um where she completely trashes Mitt Romney as the selection. Meet of Secretary the press of the interview. State, yeah. Right which was where Chuck
0: asked her why are you actively campaigning against Mitt Romney?
3: <laughs> which is a pretty un it's a pretty unbelievable thing for a member of the President elects team to publicly trash a decision which the president-elect is currently undertaking. I mean, it's really a pretty um, uh, egregiously out of order, um, unless she was
2: directed to do so. Right. So you have to assume that she's not doing this sincerely to try and persuade her boss by appearing on the Sunday talk shows to make these arguments. In fact, you have to assume that she's on the Sunday talk shows at all because her boss wants her to be. And that's after she'd already tweeted these attacks on Romney. So I assume that at some level he wanted that stuff out there. So maybe it's a head fake. Maybe he's just using this as a way to see how far will Romney go mm-hmm. to, uh, to keep this opportunity open. Uh, what will he be willing to do? How much groveling will he be willing to do? <laughs> how much can I get his soul for how right. cheaply? Um, or if
0: he ends up picking him, he can say, I heard the opposition loud and clear. But trust me on this. I've met with the man. We've made amends. Follow me. And if he can get people to follow him on that choice that they've been so uh, uh, opposed to, that's actually a fairly strong signal of Donald Trump's leadership.
1: Yeah, I find it hard to believe that Kellyanne Conway would have publicly gone on television to dissent, uh, criticize, uh, and undermine her boss in that fashion – Without it being a play in some way that he was in on. Because otherwise, if she did that and he, and she's still working for him, this is the biggest loser and, and pushover ever to come within a hundred meters of the, of, of the White House, not just to occupy it. I mean, you know, to have, if, if your staff can do that to you, in the open it's not even a question of leaks um
2: well that's why it doesn't make any sense um but that she's doing it with his approval in some sense for whatever reason but i actually think that it's bizarre usually secretary of state is the first or one of the very first cabinet positions to be announced by a president-elect it is you know um, right up there in the succession it's um it's considered one of the most senior if not the senior cabinet post and so it's odd that this is com- you know this still isn't done it's usually something that a transition team of course that's been working during the election campaign has thought about before election day mm-hmm. um and so it, it's unsettling i think to our public perception of the transition and, of course, very unsettling to allies and adversaries around the world that this post has not yet been been filled. And it's odd to me, too, to look at how he seems to be weighing the decision, how am I loyal to my base or how am I loyal to the Republican establishment, not about in any way the substance of the job. If we think through the people whose names have been floated over – the last several weeks. John Bolton, Rudy Giuliani, Newt Gingrich, uh David, Mitt Romney, and now David Petraeus, which let's come back to that in a minute. Wow. Um, you know, this is just a a bizarrely wide range of people, only one of whom has well, I suppose you could say John Bolton has experience. But, you know, only one of whom has experience at the level that might qualify them to be considered a Secretary of State. And that's the one who handed over code word classified to his mistress. So it, it, it seems as though regardless of the drawn out process, the publicity, the drama, I feel as though the way this is being done doesn't communicate much seriousness of purpose about the pick.
3: Exactly. And it also doesn't show, I mean, it shows that there's no, uh, it's not that Donald Trump has uh, foreign policy thoughts or sort of, or, or even kind of a, a general orientation on what he wants the United States to accomplish in the next four years. Um, uh, the mere fact that we're seeing such a huge, wide range of people, I think, is just further evidence that... Uh, He has no idea substantively. It's all about sort of the personality. That in turn leads me to think that the person he selects is going to have enormous power in setting the agenda, which makes it all the more important who that person is, which makes kind of the drama of the, you know, the reality TV show selection process all the more sort of fraught and, and stressful. But yeah, I'm confu- but Tamara, I'm confused by yeah. your
1: suggestion that Romney is not conventionally qualified to be Secretary of State. Um, he is somebody who had been governor of Massachusetts. He was, uh, within a, a relatively small number of uh, votes from being elected president of the United States. Uh, Hillary Clinton, at the time of her uh, selection as uh, secretary of state, had been a senator, which is not uh, obviously a, a more substantial uh, background than than a governorship of a major state. Why why is Romney not somebody who you would regard as conventionally well-qualified?
2: Sure. So I wouldn't say conventionally well-qualified. I would say he certainly fits the conventional profile. Um, What I really meant to say more precisely is someone with considerable experience in foreign affairs, which other than through his business, he doesn't really have tremendous experience with. But you know, yes, he's been through a presidential campaign during which he had to address these issues a lot. He's a credible candidate. But, you know, thinking about your point, Susan, President Obama chose Hillary Clinton, who had very different instincts and preferences and attitudes on foreign affairs from his express preferences, to be his Secretary of State. And that was actually about healing within the party and you know, unity and a sense of, of common purpose. So maybe we shouldn't, maybe neither you nor I should um, dump on Trump so much for looking inward as he makes this decision. I, I do think, though, I, I mean, the, the fact that Romney and Petraeus got floated after these other names maybe is a recognition of the fact that the first set of names... Came across as ludicrous. So I, I have a I have a question about
1: Petraeus. I'm gonna read an excerpt from a transcript of actually uh the FBI director testifying at the Hillary Clinton email hearing. And uh so Elijah Cummings asks him, the question is, do you agree with the claim that General Petraeus and I quote got in trouble for far less end of quote than hit than Hillary Clinton? Do you agree with that statement? Comey, no, it's the reverse.
0: Which is a statement, by the way, that Trump had said.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, No, it's the reverse question. What do you mean by that, Uh, Comey? His conduct, to me, illustrates the categories of behavior that mark the prosecutions that are actually brought. Clearly intentional conduct, knew what he was doing was a violation of the law huge amounts of information that even if you couldn't prove he knew it, it raises the inference that he did it, an effort to obstruct justice, that that combination of things makes it worthy of a prosecution. Sitting here today, do you stand by the FBI's recommendation to prosecute General Petraeus? Oh, yeah. And do you stand by the FBI's recommendation not to uh, to proceed uh, against Hillary Clinton? Yes. Yes. No, I mean,
3: I, I do think that this question of uh, Petraeus' name is, is really significant. Um, so first of all, the good um, – He does have foreign policy experience. He's a sane person. Um, He's led complex organizations in the past. Uh, He has, for the most part, served his country honorably and with distinction uh, with a rather large asterisk. Um, So that's sort of in the category of when we're looking at names like Rudy Giuliani and Gingrich and John Bolton, Petraeus seems like a good option. However, um, because of the precise uh, uh, facts that Comey offers, um, it's it's pretty unbelievable, right, that Trump's uh, most sort of uh, powerful, strident, consistent mark against Hillary Clinton was this misuse of classified information she couldn't be trusted. For him to... Honestly, even even float Petraeus, much less actually select him, it comes across as sort of not just a slap in the face, but sort of a a wink, wink. I never meant it. I don't actually care about any of this stuff. Uh, that paired with uh, a new revelation that apparently General Flynn had installed, uh, had secretly installed an internet connection in his office at the Pentagon, which was against the rules, an unbelievable violation of security protocol. I can't think of anything beyond actual espionage that I have ever heard of as a more significant breach. Uh, The idea that now he's building this team of just really, really egregious security violations, uh, it's unbelievable, right? And and, and seeing his team not even really try and tie themselves in knots to defend it, but just to kind of say, oh, well— we didn't really care about that stuff after all. that's I, I, I'm genuinely sort of I'm curious why there hasn't been more outrage or efforts to even sort of defend this choice from his team. Well, so well
2: it's, first of all, it's not a choice. It's just a name that's been floated. It's a meeting that's been held. And so they don't have to defend anything, which is the great advantage of stringing this process out this way is they can float trial balloons ad nauseum without having to defend a thing. It, and it's sort of a, a pattern of lack of accountability in the way they do business. It's I think it's quite deliberate. Um, but the other thing is that I don't think that kind of hypocrisy will upset the base constituency or the party establishment at all because, after all, it was all a means to an end and they won.
1: I also think that the, uh, the backlash to this stuff is um, – I I think it may be storing up a little bit. So the thing about Flynn is that he doesn't have to go through Senate confirmation. Now, if that allegation, which is an allegation that he seems to have made against himself uh, about installing that uh, thing. But if that's true, it will emerge in the FBI's background check uh, that will then be submitted Actually, to the president, uh, and
3: who can either accept or ignore their recommendation. Right, he has yeah. a
0: clearance already.
1: So, right. Well, the question is, you know, uh, th- there, there's a really interesting question. You you have to do you have to have a clear, you know, an additional clearance uh, uh, investigation as part of White House service, right? So he's going to have to have that done. That information goes to the White House. W- interesting question. What happens? if there's really disparaging material in there like say an egregious security violation of the type that he described. And the It'll leak
2: is what will happen.
1: And well so first of all, is it disclosable to Congress if the President chooses to ignore it? Um, Is it you know what happens to those? But the second issue with respect to somebody like Petraeus is um, you know, that report in the case of somebody who gets Senate confirmation goes to Congress. And it legitimately becomes the basis for all kinds of questions in a confirmation setting. And we all know that the facts that uh, Petraeus pled to uh, or agreed to in his uh, plea deal were much more egregious than the list of uh, crimes that he pled to. Uh, he was allowed to plead to something quite light over the FBI's objections, uh because Eric Holder decided to cut him a break. And you know, the question of whether a lot of individual senators are willing to do that is a very different question, particularly when that FBI file shows up in their laps. And so I, I think there's a you know the the where's the outrage question is partly being held because of what Tamara says, which is, you know, hey, right now it's just a name they're floating. Um It's not a Senate confirmation package yet, and partly in the case of General Flynn because, uh, because there is no Senate confirmation, but I think that stuff does get stored up eventually you know, and eventually those chickens do come home to roost.
3: So I think the one thing about the Senate confirmation issue is that because we have seen and are likely to see so many ridiculous names, uh, the Senate is going to have to conserve their fire, Um, especially Republican-controlled Senate. um, They are not going to be able to muster the strength to not confirm more than one or two people. Um, And the notion that you would use that fire against Petraeus as opposed to some of the other names we're hearing I'm not sure right.
2: who's still constantly I mean, John McCain, I was at a dinner last night where John McCain spoke it was on the record. He talked about David Petraeus as the most brilliant strategist I have ever witnessed in the armed forces. You know, he the superlatives were extraordinary. I, I think Petraeus could sail through the Senate easily.
1: Um, so look, maybe Petraeus should sail through the Senate because maybe the answer is. Uh, for all his faults, uh, which were evident in this criminal proceeding against him, to which he pled out uh, and was allowed to by the by the attorney general, he may be a voice of decency, reason, and sense in the context of the reckless cabal that is going to run the country, and that may be a perfectly legitimate uh, damage uh-huh. minimization strategy on the part of the Senate.
3: Right. Although I, I think you know we'll. We'll obviously have to see how this unfolds. If he is selected, um, there, there should be a serious conversation about what message this sends the DOD rank and file, um, which were incredibly upset at the light sentence that Petraeus had, um, what this sends to the sort of national security workforce about the importance of the protection of classified information. I mean, uh, if, if Petraeus actually – if his name actually uh, uh, is the choice in the end, um, there's going to have to be a lot of really serious conversations. Hold
1: that thought because we might get Mitt Romney, <laughs> <laughs> Dead. <laughs> or Ivanka or or Trump,
2: or, or or a yeah. name we haven't even heard yet. Ooh, yeah, nobody in a and trans- dramatic turn of a dramatic a turn revealed yep. and jumps Hannity. out of a box. Yeah. <laughs> God, <laughs> don't even put that out into uh, the yeah. universe. Uh,
0: all right, let's move on to our next topic. Uh, so, election recounts or lawsuits asking for recounts are underway in three states: Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. After the Green Party has come forward. And asked for them amid, as the Green Party puts it, if we're taking Jill Stein at her word, uh, concerns about Russian interference uh, in the election. Which this has been... is the
1: first time Jill Stein has ever been concerned about Russian anything. Yeah.
0: Just speaking of Mike Flynn, Jill Stein was on that trip that Mike Flynn took to Russia Uh, Last year and had some nice things to say about Putin, but we'll put that aside for a second. Um, So the the backdrop of this, of course, is that there was this obviously this unprecedented and um, documented hacking uh, tied to the election. Uh, And now Jill Stein following on the heels of some computer scientists who have raised concerns about why the votes went in an historically different direction in those three states from where people expected them to go. Uh, raised the question of, is it possible that the election was hacked? Uh, We should say there's no evidence of this whatsoever, obviously, right now. But um, these recounts are going on, and it has raised, I guess, one, fears about computer hacking. Two, I'm not entirely sure if Jill Stein and the Green Party can be taken out their word that this is why they're doing it. But the Clinton campaign has now signed on to this. Uh, And I guess this is – I don't think anybody – Really expects that you're going to come up with evidence of hacking or even irregularities that would change the vote. The Clinton campaign said as much. You'd have to overcome, even if this was just simple error in the state of Wisconsin, that the vote has never been off by that many votes. I think in Wisconsin it's like a ten thousand vote margin between the two candidates. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm not exactly sure how we're supposed to feel about the fact that this is happening. I think state officials are pretty upset about it on some level. Well, lovely. look,
3: recounts are always uh, sort of expensive undertakings. I-, I think there are sort of, there are three things to sort of note. Um, One is it's not going to change the outcome of the election and a lot of the fundraising from Stein's campaign really was um, from Democrats hoping that this was their big do-over and it's not. Uh, Two, as to Stein's motivations, I think she'd raised $7 million as of last count. She said she'll spend that on the recounts but she's not actually obligated to do so. Um, It's also unclear whether or not she um, missed Pennsylvania's deadline or not. Um, And I also think it's worth noting that R.T the Russian propaganda news service, has been furiously pushing this recount story um, which would indicate that the Russians are certainly delighted for a little extra uh, election chaos at the end. So uh, I do think it's, sort of, it's important to um, uh, note that there could be mixed motives here. Um, on sort of the substantive point about whether or not recounts are good ideas, um, that's a more difficult uh, call, right? So um, if we're going to use um, computers and, and electronic voting, um, we going forward. uh, We should probably be getting in the habit of doing audits. That's really the only way to know that things are okay. Um, And so obviously you aren't going to recount everything all the time. um, But kind of a good rule of thumb is to say when there's something that is anomalous, even if there are other totally plausible explanations like demographics, if sort of there is this set of triggering conditions, we should have a recount. Um, I think that that might be be present here. There might be a good argument. Um, The way it's been presented to the public, though, is just adding to a sense of chaos and confusion, which is not a good thing.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, when you have an election that is this close and in those three states, really, really, really close. 100,000
0: votes in the three states. Yeah. um,
2: You know, down to like a handful of votes per precinct if you spread it out. Um, So – You know, that's going to make the people who were on the losing side feel like there maybe is some chance that they could change the outcome. And that's and it's very painful. And and I think Jill Stein has used that sentiment very effectively to collect what's undoubtedly a really great groups, group of email addresses for long term networking and fundraising purposes. So great for the Green Party they're actually figuring out how to play the party building game um, but you know I I think what's odd here is if you compare this to 2000 in 2000 we had a candidate who ultimately ended up being the loser who did not concede until recounts were finished. Here we have a candidate who conceded right away um, and so there really is this sense of like well what's this all? Good for anyway,
3: but I do think that's a point of the public right. So Al Gore, the the recount was mandatory in that case. He didn't initiate it; it was a matter of Florida law. Yeah, it's a good point. Concessions are not even even if Al Gore had conceded, no, he did it he would did ultimately challenge
1: the. There was an automatic recount, but then he requested right, additional right. recounts. Look, let me let me be really blunt about this. This is really dumb, and here's why it's dumb.
2: Tell us what you really think. Ben. Yeah,
1: I think it's dumb, and I think everybody who gave money. To Jill Stein to ask for this recount got played, um, and here's he, so first of all, you do not flip an average of thirty three thousand votes per over per state um, in in a routine recount. It does not happen. So if to the extent that the goal here. Is you know the secret fantasy that maybe Hillary actually won and will flip three states and will prevent the Donald Trump presidency. You're better off buying a lottery ticket. It ain't going to happen, and it's not going to happen. Not because the election was stolen, but because <laughs> Donald Trump actually won narrowly in three states that he shouldn't have been able to win in. Uh, so that's so, so get rid of that fantasy if that's what's driving it. If the point is what these computer scientists were saying, that there's a statistical anomaly that, uh, Hillary Clinton did better in, uh, states with, uh, bubble filling, uh, sheets than she did in pure electronic counties, uh, and they are right, and Nate Silver and company are wrong that that's actually because of the demographics of the, of the people who live in those respective counties, this recount will not identify that problem because it's a recount of votes cast, not an auditing of the mechanism by which people cast their votes. So it's not going to correct that problem. There is, by the way, a fix to that problem, which is a requirement at the state or federal level that, um, that states – uh, use uh, localities, use voting technologies that are capable of a paper audit. Uh, that would be a very good policy idea, but it's late in the game uh, for this. Uh, and similarly, if the goal is to detect Russian hacking, if there was any Russian hacking of which there's no evidence at this point, um, it's not going to pick that up because this is counting the votes that were actually cast. So I come back to the question uh, that uh, – you guys started with, which is what the heck's the point of this? And I'm going to propose an answer to it, which is to line the pockets of Jill Stein and the Green Party and a big publicity stunt and nothing else. And that's why Hillary Clinton did not request these recounts. And it's why – uh uh, there has been no suggestion from the people who represent Hillary Clinton that there was something illegitimate about the votes. Now, I do believe that auditing votes as a general matter is a good idea. And I actually think auditing votes um, is – a good idea, whether or not there are abnormalities or, or, or anomalies,
3: and there are routine audits of Wisconsin, in Wisconsin already.
1: Exactly. Yes, and
3: so,
0: but not you know, in the other two. Well, there are not, in the other two states are not quite the same thing, right? Yeah. So,
3: I think I think having voting systems
1: in place in which you count votes, you have systems in which you can then do spot checks for peculiarities and irregularities, and then you're in a position if you need to, based on those. Uh, preliminary audits to, you know, re canvas segments or the entirety of the actual paper cast ballots is very good policy. You can't do that after the fact in states that have uh, the wrong sort of voting technologies. Right. And so I just think this is pretty much a scam. I think that, that the. That's not going to do anything useful for anybody.
0: I think the, uh, the the Secretary of State of Michigan might agree with you, but she just put out a statement. This is Ruth Johnson uh, moments ago, and I just want to read it because it bears on the discussion we're having. Uh, quote, it is unusual that a candidate who received just 1% of the vote, that being Jill Stein, is seeking a recount, especially when there is no evidence of hacking or fraud or even a credible allegation of any tampering. The cost of this recount to Michigan taxpayers could easily reach into the millions of dollars Based on Wisconsin's estimates, Michigan taxpayers could be paying $4 million despite the $1 million that the Green Party nominee must pay to have the recount. Nevertheless, county clerks will be gearing up to complete this recount under a challenging deadline. They'll be working nights and weekends. I know they do a great job because we have some of the best clerks here in Michigan, in, in the county, in the country here in Michigan. I mean, so there are, you know, a secretary of state taking clearly great offense at the idea from, you know, a candidate for president that there was something amiss or that perhaps the state of Michigan failed to properly uh, uh, secure uh, its uh, um, systems as well. Um, you know, I, I did some reporting on this last week. And I mean, I think this absolutely points to what you guys are saying. If you just have routine audits that went in, and many experts have said this uh, and have been saying it throughout the campaign, um, you would in fact, you know, ameliorate a lot of these problems. And, and you would also – You know, avoid the, you know, well, maybe you wouldn't avoid it, but you would avoid giving ammunition to people like Donald Trump, who then went on a tweet storm saying two to three million people voted illegally, which is completely untrue.
1: And look, to the extent that Jill Stein regrets the election outcome, as do many of us, she had an unusual ability to prevent this election outcome, which was the ability to endorse. Hillary Clinton instead of Donald Trump rather than playing a spoiler role siphoning off votes uh, from the, of the person who That's one of the most unbelievable won, things about who, post... Who, who didn't win.
3: That's one of the most unbelievable things about the sort of post-election autopsies is that we nobody has turned around to Chilstein and Gary Johnson and said "This you there are many but four causes to Hillary Clinton losing this election, but you both are one of them. I think I, think I saw a, a number that um, if... Uh, uh, 26% of people who had voted for Jill Stein in in Michigan alone, Hillary would have won, right? So um, uh, I don't know why Jill Stein is doing this. Um, I'm incredibly skeptical of her motivations. Um, uh, but I'm also um, surprised that we are not having a more serious conversation about the role that uh, that the Libertarian Party and the Green Party played in the United States electing, uh, an incredibly dangerous man to the presidency.
2: Okay, so this takes us a bit far afield from national security. But I, you know, I I think this is one of those things where reasonable patriotic people can disagree about the legitimacy of third party candidates in a system like this, even in circumstances like the circumstances we face this year. I think the broader point about audits, though, is an interesting one, because to me, it connects up with a kind of a, an a recurring conversation we've been having on the podcast about cybersecurity and good cyber hygiene, you know, and we've talked a lot about what good cyber hygiene is like for individuals or for the U.S. government. Um, but this is an example of, you know, the kinds of procedures um, that need to be put in place for state and local governments to have good cyber hygiene. Automatic audits, using mechanisms that can be audited on paper, you know, th- it maybe there's just a period of adjustment here that we we need to accelerate um of a, of changing our procedures and our practices to reflect the cybersecurity risk that can be managed but not avoided
0: okay let's move on to a story of apparent actual hacking uh in san francisco hackers holding hostage the municipal railway system susan do you want to Yes. Enlighten the Cyber was, hygiene. Yeah. She thinks you should speaking actually be freaking cyber out. Cyber hygiene. Perhaps. Yeah.
3: So this is the completely bizarre story from, from last <clears throat> week, although I guess it shouldn't have been expected. One. So this is the SF Muni. This is like the, you know, light rail system that, um, uh, San Francisco is a huge commuter, co- uh, culture because of the way sort of rent and urban sprawl has occurred. Um, uh, and so whenever people showed up, I think last Thursday, um, all of the Muni pay stations, um, displayed the message, you hacked, all data encrypted, contact for key, and then it gives a little, uh, uh, Email address where you can contact. So UB essentially, hacked? Uh, just you, hacked. It you was, hacked. It's a new variation on UB Very hacked.
1: Very succinct.
3: Um, exactly. The email hacked. address
1: was in Belarus.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so look, um, this is uh, essentially some form of ransomware. Um, so uh, it actually turns out that um, uh, Muni was able to clean their systems without paying the ransom in the past few days. Um, but but actually the only way that they were able to respond to this was actually just to open the gates and let everybody ride the uh, the light rail for free. Right. Woo-hoo is three or four days of sort of free commuter service. Um, this is actually a really, really significant cybersecurity event. It's been um, buried on sort of, you know, among the transition headlines. Um,
1: Trump keeps tweeting things.
3: Right. I mean, look, there's been um, – there was one other instance of um, – uh, earlier this year of a large medical center, um, all of its files were, um, uh, were ransomware. That was sort of wake-up call number one.
1: Police department in Maine as well.
3: Okay. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so apparently two. Um, you know, but there's, there's been a few sort of limited, um, uh, examples of, of, really serious manifestations of this problem. Um, now we're seeing one that, um, likely lost the city of San Francisco millions and millions of dollars over, you know, a two or three day period. Um, uh, it could have been a lot worse, right? It could have been a feature that encrypted the control system so that the trains couldn't run. This would cause, you know, uh, massive chaos traffic. I mean, sort of, you can, you can hardly imagine what sort of the results would be. Um, uh, we are reaching a point of cybersecurity crisis. Um, uh, one of the most interesting things to watch during the transition is we haven't seen anybody sort of in that cyberspace. Um, so one of the things that, um, has emerged Merge uh, some consensus has been building around uh, a a primary way that sort of the cybersecurity problem is going to be addressed moving forward um, is uh, bulking up FTC regulatory authority. That there's going to be regulatory authority to require um, people who manufacture, uh, you know, muni train payment systems and your phone and your toaster and Internet of Things and all these different things um, to come within a set of regulations to require that they think more about security. Um, uh, We have a president who's run on who has ran on. A, an anti-regulation platform. Um, uh, sort of the future of the FTC, I, I think, is broadly in question. Um, at the same time, we're seeing really, really ser- serious manifestations of the problem. Uh, what now?
0: This seems to me, too. I mean, this lands squarely in the lap of the next Homeland Security Secretary, right? I mean, who, you would who, hope. who is going to be, not to get back to the transition issues, but Well, actually, Donald Trump has indicated.
3: (laughs) Right. So Donald Trump has actually indicated that he wants DOD to be responsible for critical infrastructure. Um, whether or not this falls, I I think that this would, uh, you know, fairly fall within existing definitions. He's actually talked about wanting to move all of these responsibilities to DOD, which is a very strange suggestion, potentially in violation of the Posse Comitatus Act and others. Um, so to the extent he has shown thinking about this, it's, Not been encouraging.
2: He seems to think that generals are the answer to just about every problem because they know less than him. Because they know less than him, but but but, 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 no. But setting that aside, I mean it's. we we talked uh, when we were talking about the internet of things a few weeks ago we talked about you know the different incentives um that you can set up if you get put the government more in front in trying to get the you know get private sector to deal with these issues or not um and this is a like a weird intersection cuz these are private sector companies that are producing technology for local government in this case um you know, whether it's a police department or uh, or a commuter train. Um, and so here it seems to me, yeah, regulation is one way to deal with it, but the local government can also just insist on cybersecurity in its tender, you know, in its bid for tenders. Um, a city
0: like San Francisco, you would think that would be pretty – in the forefront, yeah.
2: yeah I, I mean, like it's a lot of this like stuff... Texas and textbooks, right? right. right. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of this stuff
3: runs on legacy systems. It's <clears throat> it's expensive. It's expensive to update, and uh, you know, I I do think that it's. Um, uh, yes, sort of some ground-level uh, responsibilities, city level, state level, um, but whenever you have this large of a problem with this kind of potential impact, yeah. typically we expect the federal government to step in and, and protect people. I
1: just want to say that if the ransomware guys only went after the fair systems rather than, you know, positive c- train control, computer systems, uh, and there was no question of trains going the wrong direction or at the wrong speed, or um, uh, we should all count ourselves pretty lucky. Yeah, that's right. Right, and
3: unfortunately, that might um, well it'll it'll cost taxpayers in the end because that's the way these things either if it's having to pay the ransom or the loss of the fares it, it'll get transferred to taxpayers. But you know, people got to ride the Muni free for three days. That seems like a good time.
0: And I am fascinated by. I mean, I agree with you. This is a story that I would have thought, and I should. To some degree, blame myself, and this would have gotten more attention from the national press. <clears throat> yeah, <clears> considering one would think Shane? the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> hey, listen, I've been onboarding for two days. Okay, I'm in paperwork up to my eyes. <clears throat> but it does make me wonder to what extent. And this is just an anecdotal, obviously, but especially after an election season, which we were just bombarded with these stories of hacking. To what extent do you guys think that Americans have just generally come to accept that things are getting hacked all the time? Uh, And that this is maybe even just a feature of life. And in this case, of course, nobody died and it wasn't an attack on the actual control systems of the train, although one assumes if you were sophisticated enough and willing enough to do an attack on the fare system, you you might not be that much of a leap to go there. But are we just kind of becoming – is it becoming blasé? Until
1: people die or sustain (laughs) serious bodily injury and as long as the – Actual cybersecurity costs can be distributed over large systems, so that the drain to our economy uh, is uh, measured. Though in percentage GDP terms, it may be you know reasonably high. Uh, it's not your bank account being drained, right? right? It's not any ba- given bank being uh driven out of business as long as the costs are are distributed and they're measured in dollars not in lives or 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 you know missing children or something uh we are going to keep our heads firmly in the sand about this and we're going to pay what amounts to a significant tax um uh for uh, you can call it a convenience tax but it's a tax that you pay for convenience in the form of bad cybersecurity. And that's just a policy decision we've made as a society. It's a bad one. Um, but, but,
2: but you're saying it'll change once there's a human cost instead of just an economic cost.
1: Yeah, I think w- once somebody does this to a major hospital and 10 patients on, mm-hmm. you know, die, um, once an airplane falls out of the sky, um, we're going to have a, a, a seer, once you know Uber is all on uh, 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 driverless cars, driverless yeah. cars, and they and they 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 all drive to the same spot in Montana and crash into each other. Well, all that's like a James
2: Bond movie um, <laughs> plot y- right know, there.
1: Then we will start thinking about this in a very different way. But until until you can say to the average person what has bad cybersecurity done to you um i and there can be an answer to that question other than like i had to replace my credit cards once um i think that will we're going to we're going to stay in denial about it you
2: know this. it's interesting though when we talk about homeland security and counterterrorism we talk often about resilience or the relative lack of resilience in american society the fact that americans get extremely unhappy or upset or worried about the prospect of terrorism. And and in response to any attack, there's a really um, hyped public reaction. And yet in this instance, which it's not terrorism in the sense that it's not driven by a political motive – it's mischief but um but there you you have the opposite you have this sort of blasé reaction and so i wonder if there's some lessons from this that maybe we can apply to that why is it that people respond this way to something that could be as ben points out it could be so easily catastrophic well,
0: there was a positive benefit in this case it's a little bit of a robin hood moment right i mean you know <laughs> you got to ride the train for free so Stick it why to the man. why complain i do wanted to bring it back to your question ben too about like and tomorrow you're saying the same thing that what Where where do we get sufficiently alarmed that there's kind of a national crisis-level response? Contradicting everything we just said about the recounts in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. But let's just say that they did uncover evidence that the vote in Wisconsin was hacked. And yeah, the Russians flipped all the votes for Donald Trump. I think you'd have a national-level panic.
2: A panic?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, you'd have recounts in all 50 states— there would be demands. There would be questions about the integrity yeah, so of the for, process. For- like something like that, <laughs> lives wouldn't be at stake. But no. and granted, the Russians did interfere with the election. But if it was something tangible as in cause and effect... That might inspire.
3: Look, so the problem is, is that it's there will be reactionary responses to things, right? Um, yeah. you know, something like the election, then there'll be a response on election. Like the <clears throat> dying hack, there'll be something on on sort of IoT. We're we're in a very reactionary place. The problem is, I, I think Ben is right. Um, we don't really get serious about this until there is a serious crisis. Uh, the problem is, by then it's going to be too late to yeah. do anything about it. And that space between things people instinctually care about and the things that people need to care care about in order to be safe and prosperous, Uh, usually that gap is closed by good governance. Getting people from what they think is in their interest to the place that's actually in their interest. Um, It's why uh, having a good, strong, smart, sensible government is a really, really important thing. Um, Maybe states will step up. Uh, We're looking at you, San Francisco. Come on, guys.
0: Lead the way. Uh, Or let's move on to object lessons. Um, I want to do one real quick. Mine's, it's, my, my objects well, the object itself is not kind of lame, but I'm lame for coming late to this. Uh, but a book that I am finally reading, and I cannot believe that I did not read it when it came out, I believe, last year, is The Billion Dollar Spy by David Hoffman. It is spectacular. Oh, it's so great. It's so, so good. If you haven't read this, it's – and I have just started it and already can tell it's fabulous. But it's the story of one of the really few human spies that the CIA actually had in Moscow. In the Soviet Union and running him, and it's just, I'm my as a reporter, it's jaw dropping the level of detail that he got in this book.
1: So it is it it is a wonderful, wonderful book. I wrote a lengthy review of it on Lawfare uh, back when it came out. Uh, read the actual physical book. Uh, do not listen to the audio book. The audio book is. Uh, performed uh, annoyingly by somebody who tries to do a Russian accent every time he talks. Oh, no. And it's really quite bad. uh, And it actually lessens lessens the book. Um, One other thing about this book that I think is uh, really worth noting, it never talks about Edward Snowden uh, at all. Um, but it is very much about the fragility of intelligence operations and how easily compromised they are and uh, how catastrophic uh, the damage when uh, major uh, intelligence operations are are blown. Um, And uh, it's, uh, I read it, you know, it came out in the wake of the Snowden episode. And it is one of the best accounts of the fragility of good intelligence operations I have read. And so when you read it, think about it in light of the Snowden's. Uh, controversies. Good
0: advice, and it may be coming to a theater near you too, because it's being developed by Akiva Goldsman to be a movie, Ooh. which should be cool. Also, if you haven't read Dead Hand by David Hoffman, for which he won the Pulitzer, also stunning. And great
1: follow book. him on Twitter. Yeah. I believe he's at Dead Hand. That's right, or at the Dead Hand. I forget which.
0: And he's great. Uh, And has actually been a mentor to many young journalists. So he's all around great guy. Uh, Tomorrow, would you like to share your object? (laughs) Okay, you You guys
2: are all going to make fun of me. You, in fact, you already have been making fun of me. All right, listeners of Rational Security who follow me on Twitter may have noticed that I have a little issue with life here in Northwest Washington, D.C. in the form of my bit noir, the low-flying helicopter, which sometimes buzzes above the Jungle Studio while we are trying to tape, but is much more commonly found buzzing over – Yeah, thank you, Ben. You see how annoying it is? <laughs> buzzing over my home <laughs> in Upper Northwest – um, including at like 10 or 11 o'clock at night, every single night. And this has been driving me crazy literally as long as we've lived in this house. Um, it is a regular topic of conversation on my neighborhood listserv. And until this week, I could never get a fix on who, what these helicopters are, where they come from, or why they're flying so bloody low. Well, I'm here to tell all of you that I have not been imagining this. And I have a fellow activist, (laughs) in fact, more of an activist than I am, who (laughs) Uh, has put together a website called, I love this, Fly Nice DC. Fly Nice DC. And this guy has been tracking all the helicopter flights over not just Northwest Washington, but also inner Montgomery County and Northern Virginia. And it turns out that there are some very well-behaved helicopter pilots, including the Metropolitan Police Department and the U.S. Coast Guard. And there are also some... Um, bad apples, let's say, in the form of a helicopter squadron, which is apparently based at Andrews and does all kinds of practice and training flights over our fair city in which they do not pay attention to the regulations for the altitude at which one should fly or the noise corridors in which one should fly, and they just go where they please. So if you live in D.C. and you, like me, are annoyed by low-flying helicopters, Go to flynicedc.com, take a look at the data he's assembled, which is impressive. The guy is truly obsessed, uh, even more than I. And click on the change.org petitions that he's got up there and signed.
1: So I, I just want to say, in, in defense of the sanity of my wife, um, <laughs> I, I, I have um, been uh, married to Tamara Kaufman-Wittes for uh, you know, uh, nearly 25 years now. <laughs> And this is actually the only issue on which she routinely sounds like a crazy to person. to be fair,
3: the unibomber actually was issue specific as well, so i'm not sure <laughs> so no'm no, not I, you the gentleman that's tracking.
1: but but but, course, but i mean course. I mean on all other matters, uh Tamara is the picture of sanity mm-hmm. and and responsible dialogue it's only. Low it's only flying this thing helicopter that makes your
2: windows rattle and used to wake up our children when they were sleeping at night. That is
3: unacceptable.
0: It's no good for anybody. Mm-mm. That's it. Fly
2: well,
3: nice
0: DC. Death to low flying helicopter. Death to fly <laughs> low <flying laughs> helicopter. long live
3: <laughs> Tamara, <laughs> spirit animal. <laughs> low fly, fly nice DC. <laughs>
0: Do we have any more objects? We can't really top that.
3: I can't top that.
0: I think that's it. Death You're all going to
3: sign the
2: petition, right? I mean, I as a you journalist, I can't take policy to. positions, oh. but
0: my husband can. Vote <laughs> once, vote <but> often. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast and hopefully the end of the helicopter. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at spaghettionthewallproductions.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at R A T L Security. And whenever you download the podcast from iTunes or Stitcher, or there's probably others out there now, too, podcatchers that we haven't even conceived of, whatever the millennials are using, make sure you leave a five-star rating and review. It really helps us out so people can find the podcast. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Jill Stein and the Green Pockets.
3: I like mm, it. Yeah. I yeah,
0: It actually just sound like a good band, The Green Pockets. The Green Pockets. You know, I do you go listen to that.
3: I would new even blues. To they sound
0: like an bands. Irish band. Yeah, maybe it's not really. That's not such a good thing. Uh, no, of course, our uh, music is performed as always by Sophia Yan, who would never have to ask for a recount in her popularity
2: contest, and she would never run as a third party candidate in Wisconsin. Either. She
0: sure would not. She would never do it. On behalf of my friends, Tamara Kaufman Ben Wittus, and Susan Hennessy. I'm Shane
3: Harris. We'll talk to you next week.